We have to make sure that we are letting scripture speak on its own and stand above other revelation. This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Hey there, Bob Squad. Welcome back to another episode of Bobcast. I'm Caleb Castro. I'm Andrew Smith. So this is episode 39. Like the number of articles of the Anglican religion. Exactly like the number of articles in the Anglican religion. <laughs> what about the 42 articles? We will someday achieve that. We should talk about that someday. We should. (laughs) So in case you haven't gotten it yet, this is episode 39. We're discussing chapter 7 in the wonderful works of God on the Holy Scriptures. So, Andrew, where were we last time? It's It's been kind of a while. We had a little bit of a break last week. Just things got very busy. Yeah. So if it's been a couple weeks since you've listened now, you're going to need a refresher, just like us. Yep. So what are we doing here, Andrew? So we have been talking about the Holy Scriptures out of chapter 7 of Wonderful Works of God. We're sort of picking up on around page 86. We sort of started to get into this discussion a little bit, talking about the agency of God and the agency of man in the composition of Scripture. Now, some of the points we'd made last time was that the Spirit moving through these authors does not mean that the human authors were purely passive. They remain self-conscious. They remain actors. They know what's going on. They write for reasons. You might remember last time, for instance, I mentioned... When Paul writes his letters, he names people he knows and his own travel plans, and there is his human activity involved, even though he is moved along by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I believe the key phrase that we could use in this is a major motif of bobbing. Here you have the organism, or you have organic inspiration, that there's initially an oral tradition, oral passing along of these stories, of these uh, prophecies, of these accounts that we have in Scripture. But it took time for these things to actually be recorded, actually put down to writing in inscripturation. And there's actually diverse ways that scripture had been inscripturated. Right. All of it being inspired, all of it being infallible and inerrant. But God is using human agency to naturally develop and reveal more and more of this history of redemption, of what he's doing in salvation culminating in Jesus Christ. And this is important when we start to look at the study of Scripture in our modern age, and Bovink goes here too next, when he starts talking about higher criticism. Caleb, for our listeners, would you maybe give a quick rundown of what higher criticism is and does? No. Okay. So (laughs) next chapter. (laughs) Yeah, Higher textual criticism is taking a look at a text and you are engaging critically with that text or with that the thing that you're investigating. You're looking at it, say in this case, uh, the documents of scripture, manuscripts, and you are closely examining methodically the various components of this document. So what's the grammar uh, like, the syntax, uh, you're looking for consistencies, inconsistencies in, in uh, literary style and literary genre. And then you're looking at historical context. So you're going to the history books and you're looking at other uh, documents from that time period and comparing the styles of writing. 
You're looking at similar genres from other sources. Basically, you're trying to paint a big picture of the world in and around the text and the time that it was written. You can tell quite a lot about that document based on its contemporary sources. For example, probably one of the most famous ones, there was a document called The Donation of Constantine that was said to have come from Emperor Constantine in the 4th century AD. And this document said that Constantine wrote it out that all of the, the lands of the empire essentially is to be inherited by the church. And so this was kind of then seen for hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years to be kind of like a deed and title to all these various territories of the empire that Constantine legally gave them over to the church as a possession. Well, it came out that in the 14th century, through the use of a critical method in examining the text, this donation, this letter of donation, this title indeed was a forgery. It was using words that weren't found, uh, that weren't used in the 4th century. They were, I believe, what, a 9th century forgery. Longer explanation, but uh, there you have it. So how would that look then, an application to scripture in the contemporary period? What is Bobby getting at, Andrew? Well, he's getting at something that we still see a lot in our day. Higher criticism among most evangelicals gets a bad rap, and often with good reason, because it's often this very skeptical, doubting approach to the scripture. Basically, the idea is we can't really trust the text as presented as it's been handed down. We need to get behind it and figure out what's really going on. We need to reconstruct. We need to make theories about how we got these books. And usually this takes the form, at least in secular academia of questions about dates and authorship in a lot of cases. So one of the prevailing scholarly theories of the 20th century on the Bible, particularly concerning the Pentateuch, was known as the JEDP theory, those four letters, each representing a purported author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, basically trying to break down the unity of those books, which we'll get into those books a little more here in a minute. Uh, but basically the idea that they're not a unity, they're a compiled work. Usually along with this comes the idea that they're written much later than has historically been understood. There is a certain intent with a lot of this critical methodology to try to undermine the inspiration, authority, historicity of scripture. And this is a problem, and we recognize this is a problem. But Bavink is getting at, just because these methods can be abused to do these sorts of things does not mean that the whole endeavor is evil. There are things that from these methods of study, these modes of exploration and inquiry that we can actually learn about Scripture that help us and help us to understand better how the Bible came to be. So one example he appeals to, and this is a big one still even now, is the study of other ancient Near Eastern texts and cultures and so forth. And this is something that, especially in Old Testament studies, has become very important in that, okay, you have Israel, you have ancient Israel, and you have what they were doing, you have their language. Well, what about the cultures around them, and what about how they do language, how they assemble texts, how they do poetry, how they just generally exist as a people and a culture. And 
what can that tell us about the context in which the Bible came to be? Yeah, and going on to page 88 uh, along that same stream, that uh, second paragraph on that page, we even get a concept of ancient Near Eastern laws, civil laws. He says, we have knowledge of events and of laws which were set down in writing. For example, Code of Hammurabi, you know, there's similarities in forms of a covenant in legal code uh, of how a uh, nation's king is to relate to his subjects and what are the duties then of the subjects to the king and then how these people relate to their gods. So we can build a, a bigger background in this way uh, by comparing these literary types. Uh, and same thing where in the New Testament, you know, we could look at the 400 years from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament to kind of look at the shape of Judaism and how Judaism after the temple, when they were having to meet in synagogues as displaced people, how those synagogue practices actually helped to form later church practices after Pentecost when the Christians were meeting up together and how this shaped their liturgies and worship styles. So Bobbing's point in all this is that it's a very natural development. There's a very uh, human element that the Lord is using to broaden the redemptive history and to bring the word, even the contents of the word, the things uh, that the word is talking about and what it's concerned with, what it's teaching on salvation, he's bringing it up in a very particular time, place, and culture and with very unique authors. And this comes back to something that we talked about earlier on in looking at wonderful works is this idea that general revelation serves special revelation. Basically, the purpose of culture, the purpose of civilization, I mean, it does a lot of things, but one of the primary purposes is to provide an order, to provide a world, a society for God to carry out his plan of redemption of humanity. These things of language and culture and all that are all a part of that. Now, that does not mean that the comparisons between Israel and other ancient Near East cultures are always valid or always legitimate. There can be a tendency to commit something that is talked about sometimes in scholarly work, parallelomania, the idea that we're just looking for parallels and anywhere and everywhere, even if parallels don't actually exist. It's okay to recognize the similarities between Israel and other cultures, but we also have to make sure that we are recognizing properly the distinctiveness, because how much even does the Bible talk about the distinctiveness of Israel from the surrounding peoples. Right. There are many ways in which they were not and were not allowed to be the same as the peoples around them. And the other issue, too, that we have to watch out for in ancient Near East studies is we have to make sure that we are letting Scripture speak on its own and stand above other revelation. Remember, if general revelation serves special revelation then we shouldn't be putting special revelation in scripture as subordinate to general revelation. We shouldn't be letting the ancient Near East tail wag the dog of the Bible and dictating more than it should about how we understand it. Right. We could place a tradition equal to or above the authority of scripture. Right. In that same point, you're saying how we can go back to what Bobbing was talking about in special revelation. I think we could simply say special revelation is occurring in the context of the work of creation. He's doing this work among and by means of even his image bearers. One of the primary means that he's utilizing 
speaking is the human language. He's not just going into dreams or coming in, appearing in visions, you know, as Bob Inc. was talking about earlier, but he is working through communication and, and language. And what is being communicated is, as you say, not the general revelation, the things of nature, but Christ. The special revelations content is Christ himself, the Savior. So it's not just merely the message of salvation, but the message of Savior, the message of Jesus Christ, Lord and God. Now, when you go towards the bottom of page 88, you know, Bobbing talks about Moses' hand in uh, the writing of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch or the Torah. Moses is going in uh, really only writing certain portions of it, he states. Initially, the word of God had started as uh, oral communications, as oral stories, but, you know, passed along from generation to generation, tribe to tribe. At some point, though, Moses goes and commits some of this to writing. But Bobbing makes the statements, though, it is quite possible that various portions of the five books of Moses were in part extant before his time. So when Moses was learning the art of writing in Egypt, it's likely that he is coming across other recorded stories, other recorded detailings of history. And he is, in a way, assessing them and uh, then presenting them in a biblical worldview, essentially. He then makes a statement, though. It's not only that Moses may have come across some of these stories and revise him in a Christian worldview himself, but others under Moses's direction, who himself is also under the direction of the Holy Spirit, then are also revising and editing uh, in some manner these histories. We see this because sometimes in the books of Moses, we see third person accounts talking about Moses, particularly, for instance, at the end of Deuteronomy, we see the record of Moses' death. Is it possible that God revealed to Moses the circumstances of his old death? I mean, it's possible, but more likely, you know, those who were serving Moses in this capacity, editing and compiling and whatnot, added the note of Moses' death upon Moses' death. And, you know, we could push that even farther in that. He cites here Genesis 12, 6b, that reads, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So that latter statement obviously has to have some insight or knowledge that the Canaanites uh, were later on displaced from this land. Yeah, well, isn't what he's getting at that they weren't known? It would not have been known as Canaanites at that time. Right. I mean, this is pretty early on. Abram is in the land of Ur here at this point. So is this a prophetic statement or is Moses saying that, oh, you know, talking about it in a past tense that, hey, you know, these Canaanites are going to be taken out of the land by the time that this is written, <laughs> you know, or is this being included later on by a scribe under the direction of the Holy Spirit? Mm -hmm. Is it possible there are then those editors and scribes, those copyists who are also inspired or rather their work is inspired by the Holy Spirit and not just the major biblical authors? Or is Bobbing getting liberal on us? Well, it's certainly possible. I mean, for one thing, we have to recognize that the five books of the Pentateuch, while attributed to Moses, books of Moses, the books themselves do not say, you know, it's not like, for instance, Paul's letters where it says Paul and then, you know, who he's writing to and all that. There are parts, for instance, that Jesus clearly does attribute to Moses, and we certainly need to maintain that that is accurate. I mean, Jesus had perfect knowledge. He was not going to be mistaken about something of that. There are parts attributed to Moses, and we know that for sure. Beyond that, it's not really 
absolutely necessary that the entirety of the books be written by Moses. The point of this being, we shouldn't claim more about authorship of Scripture than Scripture claims for itself. Right. Bobbing says himself there on page 89, you know, this is to take nothing away from the divine authority of the word. Right. It doesn't contradict the scriptural expression where, like you said, there's parts where the Pentateuch is referred to as the book of Moses or the law. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that we get a clearer sense of this later on when we'll be discussing the Psalms. What is going on here? What kind of ways that inspiration is actually at play? And to your point where you had said, you know, we don't in most of these books of the Bible have this book was written by Joshua's hand. But for Paul, even then, he didn't actually write the bulk of the epistles by his own hand, correct? Right. And he acknowledges as much in some of his epistles. Some of the epistles have the joint greeting where it's like Paul, Silas, Timothy writing to. So if you see in Romans 16.22, it says... I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now you're like, wait a minute, I thought Paul wrote this letter. The fact is, I mean, Paul was likely dictating, and he likely had a secretary, this Tertius in this case, who actually wrote down what Paul was telling him to write down. So it is not that Paul necessarily wrote with his own hand. In fact, there's other letters where Paul says at the end, I write this greeting with my own hand. What very well may have happened there is the secretary wrote the rest of the letter up to that point. And then at the end, Paul scrawls out a few lines of his own writing just as a personal touch to say, hey, this is me. (laughs) Big, big, bold letters. Paul. Yeah. (laughs) I I, I like this idea, though, of also Romans 16.22. You know, Paul's doing this big, amazing exposition on basically the Christian teaching and on doctrine. Uh, and then at the end, you know, he's he's done this this beautiful letter, and Tertius is like, "Oh, oh, oh, can I say hi? Can I say yeah. hi?" Paul's like, "All right, whatever." I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, I, I think that that really beautifully shows, you know, hey, how how the Lord is really working by you know through human means. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's not like Paul is taken up into some, like, ethereal state, out of body, out of mind, to write these letters. He's sitting in a room with his staff, his secretary, and, you know, hey, grab a paper and take this down. (laughs) (laughs) That's usually the picture, you know, uh, given to us. I mean, I think you would know more on this topic, but in some ways seems kind of like what the Mormon approach might be, right? Well, yeah, for the Latter-day Saints... Well, they have various sources, but like the primary of the Book of Mormon was that Joseph Smith claimed to have received these golden plates written in some ancient language. And then he got them and had to, by this process, there was this use of seer stones and looking through them. And then from that, he was able to translate these plates. And then once he was done with his work, those plates were then allegedly taken away. They were taken up into heaven. So the issue that creates is we don't even, I mean, we don't even have the original sources of the Book of Mormon. Um, We just have basically Joseph Smith and his associates saying, take our word for it. I think that very much highlights the point. You know, I don't take that as an aside. I think that very much emphasizes what we're talking about here through Bob Inc. What Bob Inc. is addressing, that Mormon system, if they are a continuation of or a correction of the Christian tradition, scriptural tradition, that would be really out of character if we're looking closely to what the Bible is actually saying about itself. That method of delivering revelation would be pretty out there. 
What's interesting, too, about looking at Joseph Smith and the LDS particularly is there are some attempts he made at translating of ancient works that actually did exist and he did have. So one such text is the Book of Abraham. It's part of the Pearl of Great Price, one of the LDS standard works. They hold it as scriptural. So what happened is Joseph Smith came into possession of some Egyptian papyrus And because he claimed he was this translator of ancient languages, he could translate that. So this, of course, was in the mid-19th century when Joseph Smith was doing his work. He made the translation known as the Book of Abraham. He also made a wood carving of the papyrus that's been printed in almost every edition of the Pearl of Great Price since then. So at least from that, we knew what it looked like. And then that papyrus was lost. It disappeared. Well... In the late 1960s, that papyrus was found at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And between the time of Joseph Smith and the 1960s, there had been several major discoveries in the field of Egyptology, including well-known the Rosetta Stone. Not the computer software, but the actual stone itself that gave (laughs) scholars the ability to read ancient Egyptian language. So they found this papyrus. They knew it was the right one because it matched Joseph Smith's wood carvings. But when they actually translated it with the knowledge of the language, Joseph Smith did not get any of it right. His translation was, was bogus, basically. I'm not trying to bash any of our Mormon friends, but this is documented. There's articles, books, whatnot about it. It's out there for people to find. But so what we can see here is what can happen and the sort of problems that arise when the process of the authorship of scriptures is divorced from human processes or treated as like this super spiritual experience completely apart from the use of normal means. Well, that's all the time that we have for now. I hope that you enjoyed this uh, conversation and found it as uh, edifying as at least I personally have. I don't know, uh, Andrew, if you know how you feel about that. Oh, I'm sorry. You were still talking. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, now I know how you feel. We're going to do the the zines thing again. The zines thing? The zines thing. Don't you mean the totes thing? The totes and the zines. Well, totes and zines. Totes and zines to you as well. Until next time. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.